Welcome to OnScript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy world. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. In this episode, you're going to hear a discussion about the early versus late emergence of Israel, and that word emergence is deliberate and provocative and uh, hopefully this episode will inform you more about that and, and give you um, some handles for thinking and deciding uh, what you believe about that topic. So uh, without further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome back on Script Biblical World listeners. Um, I'm excited to continue our series dealing with Egypt and the Bible today with my good friend and colleague who I haven't seen in a while, Mark Jansen. I am your host, Chris McKinney, and today we're going to dive into a controversial topic, um, the date of the Exodus, conquest, settlement, the emergence of Israel, you might say, in, uh, uh, in, one, in one way. Uh, Mark, how you doing? I'm good. Just getting settled into the uh, the new friendly confines here at Lipscomb. Got the new office here, and uh, got all moved. And you know, we had that break because I was moving, and that's always a huge endeavor, though very exciting. And I know you've been out of the country a lot, but we are back in the swing of things. Hopefully, get into a into a routine here for recording. Less of a gap. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And I would say the most important thing we'd say is, first of all, congratulations on your new uh, your new gig there at Lipscomb University uh, and the Lanier uh, Archaeology Department uh, yeah, School of Lanier, Archaeology. Lanier Center for Archaeology. But thank Lanier you. Center of Archaeology. I couldn't quite remember the name. And for those listeners, we just did um, a episode in the field with one of Mark's colleagues, Steve Ortiz, uh, where he talks about uh, Lanier Center of Archaeology, um, and so that's 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 great news. It's so good to have uh, have you have you there, and uh, I'm excited to to dive into this fun, controversial topic about the date of the Exodus, the date of the the conquest. Uh, and why don't you start us off? What are some what are some texts? Um, that inform us about the date of the Exodus and the conquest, if we think about the biblical text, and then we can get more into, you know, how that relates to archaeology, history, and so on. Mm-hmm. So you have your your two big verses for dating the Exodus, I would say. But there's, of course, more. There's judges and things like this, but they're really First Kings 6, 1, and Exodus 1.11. And so I'll start reading with uh, 1 Kings 6.1, which says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So pretty straightforward. We have 480 years after they come out of Egypt, i.e. the Exodus. Solomon, in his fourth year, begins building the temple. So we do the math, syncing up Assyrian chronology and the eponym lists, which record eclipses. At any rate, there's not really any debate about Solomon's reign. And you do the math for the 480, and you end up with an exodus at, I think, most early date proponents would say 1446, what, give or take a year. 
um, is it in the 480th year? So maybe it's year 479 they came out, right? You get that kind of thinking. But let's call it 1446 BC for now. And then, of course, we have Exodus 111, which mentions that the Israelites built two store cities for Pharaoh, Pithom and Ramses. And Ramses is unanimously, essentially unanimously, agreed to be the writing of the Egyptian city, Pi Ramses. And so this is really important for chronology because it would have been started by Seti I in the 19th dynasty and then finished by Ramses the Great early in his reign. Again, there's really not much debate about Ramses' reign, like his, his chronology. So that's 1279 to about 1213. So somewhere in the early part of that is when they would have built the city, which would, of course, not sync up with the 480 years mentioned in 1 Kings. So right at the outset, we just need to note, if you're taking both verses literally, there is a contradiction. And Pi Ramses is the city we referenced a few episodes back because of how incredible the archaeology was there and the fact that the branch of the Nile it was on dried up, so they abandoned it around 1150, 1130, somewhere in there. And it's a great mark for the authentic, marker of authenticity because why would they know about this place if they weren't there when it's long gone by the time the text takes its final shape? Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, I think a real good kernel of authenticity, but it doesn't fit the reference in First Kings chapter six. Yeah, I think that's 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 very clear. And maybe I'll just kind of reiterate the the point and say. Um, Playing devil's advocate here, you have uh, one text that presents some math that deals with the settlement, um, that deals with the the exodus, that you have a, a, a known number. Let's say we know that Solomon's fourth year is something like 967 or 966, and then you just simply add 480 to that, and you get to 1446. And the reason why we know 966, as, as you alluded to, is actually because of extra-biblical material, not because of anything internally with the Bible. Uh, we know that from Shishak, actually, as well as some Assyrian text, which is also Egyptian, because we know that Shishak's campaign uh, was something like 925 BC, which is five years after uh, Solomon's reign, and that's also, too, as mentioned in the Bible. So one of those strands of evidence is a mathematical equation, 966 plus 480 equals 1446, and then you do the rest of the biblical chronological math from there. You can go back and you can know that Abraham was 2166 BC, or you can go the other direction and you can figure out uh, using the biblical chronological math, if you should choose to do it that way. The other one, in Exodus 111, uh, is more a cultural thing, and in the sense that it deals with specific material culture. Why would um, the writer of the book of Exodus make a reference to the city of Ramses the Great being built and constructed um, that doesn't fit the time period? In other words, if it was 1446 BC that we have the Exodus, Ramses is 200 years or so from arriving on the scene. It's something like the difference between um, Harry S. Truman 
uh, and uh, let's see if I can get my my, my history right. Uh, and you know, uh, <laughs> Jonathan Edwards. Uh, I mean, it's it's a, it's a huge gap um, uh, in, in terms of in terms of time sequence. And so, which one is which one is right? And I think I think that that I said is important is even the so called early date view here is based upon other extra biblical synchronisms like the fact that we know Solomon's reign it's based upon extra biblical data not internal biblical data itself and that's going to be one of our our big questions is as uh, historians as archaeologists you're an Egyptologist I'm a, a geographer archaeologist um, we try to know the actual things about what happened now a lot of times we can say well this is as far as we can take it but as people who consider the biblical text um, to be a reliable source for history in general, um, how do we how do we make these things work? And you might even say, how do we approach the evidence? Which one gets the dominance? You know, which like when they contradict archaeological evidence or seemingly contradict um, archaeological evidence in biblical text, which one wins, or is that kind of like a false question? Well, I think it is the case for me. I think it is a case where something has to give. Uh, because they don't, on a literal reading, those two verses cannot be reconciled. You either take Ramses in Exodus 111 as a later editorial gloss. They just sort of added it in because I guess they're trying to reach an audience that might know of it, which has a lot of issues with when did they actually finalize the writing and all these kind of things. Or you take that 480 years and you understand it to be not literal, but symbolic. And you wouldn't do that unless ancient civilizations in the Mediterranean and the Near East give you good reason to, right? And so these, these kind of interpretive dilemmas are solved when we contextualize it to the ancient world. So, okay, would they have added a later gloss like that to clarify the name of a city or a place? Well, sure, or the Chaldeans, right? Would they have taken a number like 480 years and said, no, it's not literal, it's symbolic? Absolutely. The, the Assyrians do this constantly, and their, their number that they like to use for the symbolism is the number 16, or 60, because it's a sexagesimal counting system. Really, they do it the most, I think, with 60. Uh, and so 480, of course, happens to be 12 times 40, and I don't think we need to explain to listeners the importance of 40 in the Bible. Or 12. So you t <laughs> Or 12, right? So it's like, okay, wait a second, what is this number doing here? And I think it's important to recognize that in many respects, then it comes down to the type of modern thinking having to sort of take a backseat to try to get away from our sort of presentism with how numbers are literal and like set in stone and say, okay, well, what about what about what the ancients did with them? And in the context of temple dedication and major building projects, the Assyrians especially give us evidence of this, but there's the 400-year stela in Egypt as well under Ramses the Great again. So there is some evidence that would suggest that we should strongly consider the possibility that this number is symbolic, which is kind of mind-boggling to our way of thinking. But again, it's not about our way of thinking. Yeah, I I would I, I'm not going to say I, I agree completely. I don't disagree either. I just think that here there's some 
there's some options. And I'll, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll maybe I'll present it that way. To answer, if I could provide an answer to the question of which one gives, you know, archaeology versus um, Bible, I do think it's a bit of a false question. Because most of the time, in my experience, what's, it's not a question of which one's right, the, the hard evidence of archaeology or the literary evidence of the Bible. Um, most of the time, in my experience, there is an answer in our interpretation of how we actually either are looking at the archaeological evidence or our interpretation of the biblical text. And I think that's really what we're looking at here. Which one of these texts, you might say, is easier to interpret for historical evidence? And I think for both of us, the conclusion is Exodus 1.11. It clearly has to be connected with Ramses the Great, who reigned in the 13th century because of what the archaeological evidence demonstrates and because of what the historical evidence indicates with, uh, with Ramses the Great. In the case of the number 1 Kings 6.1... And you could add in Judges 11.26 to that with Jephthah's 300 years, is one question I would have, and I've spent a lot of time um, not only looking at this question, but looking at numbers in the Bible in general, I think when you get into the book of Kings, um, which is of course where 1 Kings 6.1 is, there are numbers that are very sophisticated, that are very um, much connected with administrative types of documents, and I'm talking about the regnal chronology of the kings of Israel and Judah, that I think uh, can, even though on the face of it, if you, if you read today and try to make sense of it without knowing the backstory, it's hard to do, and, and that's actually how Josephus and other, like the Septuagint, they really didn't understand how the system worked. But if you go to someone like uh, uh, Tila, who wrote a famous book called The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings, he was able to unravel using the administrative regnal system of Babylon and Assyria with something called a session year reckoning, non-accession year reckoning, and things of that nature to demonstrate that the, um, the royal chronology that you have presented in the Book of Kings can be unraveled, and it, mats- it matches almost exactly the period of time for the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel between 931 to 722, the end of the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Judah in 586 BC. Um, and that's a great book if you haven't, if you haven't read it. Um, it's a great resource. Um, but the question is, okay, those are, are, are clear and they fit well, but what about a, a big number, like 480 years, when everyone agrees Israel had no way, or had had no administrative system where they were counting to go back to 480 years. It has to basically be based on some type of oral memory, some type of long-distance uh, memory. H- how were they able to, uh, to come up with such a number? Well, for, um, for someone who believes in the inspiration of text, they can just simply say, God gave it to them. Um, and that's, uh, I guess, an option. It may, maybe it is an option, but given the context of what um, the biblical text is talking about, how do these numbers work? And the answer for a lot of these questions, especially in like uh, in Genesis, like the, the patriarchal numbers, um, where the stakes really aren't that high, at least for me, is I can say, I don't know. I don't know how uh, how Sarah... <laughs> can both be 90 years old 
and someone that uh, uh, that Avimelech, the king of Gerar, wants to have part of his harem. Uh, I don't know how those those two things work together, um, but I can say for something like this, for the four hundred and eighty or the three hundred years, that you you can go the symbolic route and say twelve times forty. But I actually think that there might be another um, option, or, or, or to add to that, because that that mathematic uh, multiplication one is, is is an option that's quite popular. But I wonder too is if we think about how the biblical text is being put together, is if you could actually add up all of the numbers between Exodus to First Kings six one and account for some minor uh, uh, contemporary things of overlap. You you can easily come up with a number that's like 479. And you can do the same thing uh, for uh, for Jephthah. In other words, from the Exodus to the time of Jephthah, when Jephthah says, for 300 years we've been here and you haven't complained, you can come up with almost exactly 300 years just using the internal numbers themselves in the biblical text. And actually, this is exactly what Josephus does. In Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews— what he does for his first King six one version, um, uh, which is not doesn't follow uh, the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible, he has five hundred and ninety five years, and so if you go back and look at his numbers in Antiquities of the Jews, all he's doing is adding up all the numbers from the time of the Exodus to that point in his story, and so and actually that represents a type of passage of time, a type of calculation. Um, and it's showing what's happened to that to that point. Now, is it the way we would think about numbers? Is it the way that we would uh, aggregate uh, or, or create? Um, you know that 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 George Washington became president on was it 1783, uh, and therefore we are however many years from that point. No, um, but the other question is, how would they even have had the ability to account for these long? distances, these long passages of time. We know the Assyrians could, but they created a system where they could name every year. It was named by a, uh, a governor's official, an event that happened, and, um, you know, and, and a city. So every year had a specific name. As far as we can tell, there was not such a system that existed in ancient, in ancient Israel. And so all those things have to be considered when we approach those numbers. And in addition, just thinking about, well, maybe they're just saying <laughs> it's a long period of time um, when, we, when we get to those get, get to those questions. So I would say, besides the, the uh, kind of go-to, you know, 12 times 40 is 480, there's other options under that uh, that I've written on, and actually this idea I just suggested, I have a, a paper coming out that I'll uh, share with our, with, our, uh, with our listeners when it, does, when it is published. Yeah, so a um, lot to react to uh, in that. I think for me, I would say that the, we, we should really start with the simple truth that when, when you try to do the chronology, say, from let's just do Exodus through to Solomon, and you get into judges, then you have the question of regional versus national judge and overlap and the dates given. I throw Jephthah out altogether. He's a blubbering idiot. That's the whole point of his whole story. And the very next passage after his his 300 years claim is, you know, his rash oath and sacrificing his daughter. So I don't think he's a credible source, and I don't think holding to, like, inspiration requires us to say, oh, Jephthah said it, it must be true, any more than we should think that what 
you know, the devil tempts Jesus with is a proper use of scripture, right? We can all recognize quotes have to be contextualized, and, and Jephthah's not a great source. But the point more so that I want to make here is that when you add up these dates and judges, you can, they can kind of become all things to all people. Now, I mean, Kitchen has it in his book, On Reliability of the Old Testament, that I'm going to reference here in a second um, on a different note, but that, you know, you get this aggregate, then he basically just puts it as 574 plus XYZ. If you want to get it to 480 plus to Solomon, you can do that. Or it's even longer if you just added them all up, even with the wiggle room taken out, you're still past the date 1446 BC for the Exodus. So then it's, so no matter what, on these two dates, you are going to have to say, okay, the chronology has to have some uh, wiggle room, and we've got to understand some overlap with the judges or some numbers not to be literal, what, whichever symbolism you use or understanding you use. I think if you just took it at face value and add it straight up, the number's bigger than 480 no matter what. Um, so no one's really doing that. So like even the even the proponents of the early date who take the 480 years literally aren't taking every number and adding it up literally. You see what I mean? So they're they've already got to admit that they do what I'm suggesting we do with 480. They have to do sort of elsewhere, even if it's not quite the obvious um, math of 12 times 40. But it would fit what you're saying with some of these other ways to interpret 480. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I would even just add that. Um... We actually, with that First Kings six one, have a variety of traditions because the Septuagint, which often provides a is four hundred and forty, which doesn't really fit anyone's view. Um, um, but and and we and as I said before, we have Josephus coming to a text and saying, "Well, I'm not going to go with that four hundred and eighty because it doesn't fit my math." Who's to say that um, in a you know that what we have in First Kings six one was not updated to match um, a, 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 a different tradition. You know, we have, we have two. We have the Septuagint, we have the Masoretic text. And so all I'm saying is, is that should give us some pause and say, well, this is what the text says, but it doesn't really, um, it doesn't allow me to fit in with these other things, such as the Exodus 1.11, such as other things. Uh, it's not just the Ramesside stuff, um, which I think we can spend a little bit more time on, but it doesn't fit with, with the references we have, for instance, to the Philistines. We know from extra-biblical sources that the Philistines arrive at the very earliest. They're arriving in Canaan maybe over a series of decades, but their big battle is 1175, B.C. or 1180 B.C. with with Ramses the Third or battles depending on your view, and it coincides with the collapse of the larger Mediterranean world towards the end of the 13th and beginning of the 12th uh, to 12th century, and that's actually precisely what we have in the Book of Joshua. The first references that we have to the Philistines are in the land that yet remains in Joshua 13, and the Philistines and their five cities are a part of the land that yet remains. If the Exodus happens in 1446, and you have uh, Joshua conquering the land 40 years later in 1406, uh, then it means then that the Philistines have to be around then, if you're going to be literal, because Joshua 13 says that they're there, and yet we know from uh, history um, that they're not there, uh, at least in especially those five cities, 
until at the very earliest, the very end of the 13th century and beginning of, of, of the 12th. So that's another aspect of material culture reference being more indicative of date as opposed to uh, the raw numbers of, of chronology. And I would like, uh, uh, Mark, for you to tell us a bit more about, okay, yeah, we have the date of Ramses, you know, we know his reign, but we also have other, a lot of elements um, that not only seem to match, okay, the, the, the capital that the Israelites um, may have been help constructing, and it's right there in the land of Goshen, um, but how that fits in overall with the story. I would, I would say, as a way of like kind of pointing you in this direction, is that the story we have in the book of Exodus is not just a, an Egypt at large picture, but it's really a, an Egyptian, uh, lower Egypt, northern story of the land of Goshen. And, um, and for those who would hold to a view that has uh, the 15th century part of the Exodus, you know, 1446, actually the, the base of power where, where, where Moses and Pharaoh are going to have to have all these arguments with Aaron around is going to have to be a long night train all the way down to, to Thebes. <laughs> <laughs> to go to go to Luxor because that's where the capital is. Yeah. Um, so let fill us in a bit more about that. Maybe we can have a conversation about how the 19th dynasty matches much better in the overall, let's say, cultural elements that we see in the story. Yeah, it's a seriously important point. It helps. It also kind of helps put a bow on this last little bit that we've been discussing about the the dates and the chronology is. The early date doesn't have a monopoly on the high view of scripture. Right. I'm late date, and I think you are, and I think I can speak for both of us in saying that we both hold Scripture to be uh, inspired and useful for history. And so if you actually just look at the Pentateuch, the date that you will come up with for the Exodus is in the reign of Ramses the Great, or at least in the, in the 19th dynasty, which is when the capital is in the Delta. And of course, Thebes is still important. No one's saying that they're not in Thebes, but you need Ramses to, the Pharaoh, I mean, to be where Moses can get to him. And that's going to happen in that time period. And various different things about the the text in the Pentateuch suggest that we are living in the, like you said, lower Egypt and northern Egypt, in other words, and that we are not traveling back and forth to Thebes. We're not at Karnak or Luxor Temple. We're not at the base of power for the 18th dynasty, which would be that 1446 date. And I think it's it's really important to note that because if we were to just, if we don't, if we take a date from a later passage of scripture that's talking about something like the Exodus, and we don't contextualize it properly, which is to say 480 years could be a number of things, or we take what Paul says about Sinai in Arabia and Galatians and don't recognize what Arabia encompassed in his day, then we get way off. I mean, it's a really broad way to put it, but that's how you get people thinking Sinai is in the complete wrong peninsula, because within the data, within the book of Exodus itself in the larger Pentateuch, you know to place it in southern Sinai. Within the Exodus and Pentateuch narrative for when this takes place, there are Ramesside-isms, not Thutmose-isms, if you will, to use the, the famous pharaohs of each time period. Different things that the 19th dynasty is doing with tent like coverings that. for shrines, right? Yeah, I just coined that, I think, right? Th that's a Ramesside 
innovation, and we're going to hopefully have in another episode or so an expert on that and to talk to us more about it. So that's just a little teaser. But the point here that matters most is if you take the Exodus and Pentateuch narratives as your primary source within the biblical data, you don't end up at 1446. And of course, we'll talk about the archaeology and some of that too. But within the um, with, with with Pi Ramses, of course, the point is this: the narrow window of time that it's used, roughly from Ramses the second to you know eleven forty, eleven thirty in there. Some people put it at eleven fifty, and that's hard geology, right? That's a it's a hard science saying this branch of the river is gone, and then Egyptology saying, well, a Ramesside city, capital city, regional capital at the very least, on a dried up branch of the river is no splendid city after all, and then they move the whole thing to essentially what will become Tanis. You know, so these are these aren't like up for really any debate in in, in interpretation. It's this is the capital and then it moves because of the dried up branch. And so that gives us a window of time for the narrative that is crucial. And that's within the narrative itself, not an external biblical source. Because I think sometimes people think, oh, Bible, one book because of the theological, you know, things. And I, I agree with that on the theology and that it's God's grand story of redemption. But when we're talking about specific to, you know, details like dating the Exodus, we should be starting with the Exodus book itself and then Pentateuch and then beyond. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I would say that if the early date were, like, if the early date were to be the, the correct interpretation, we would expect to read, instead of Ramses, Avaris, uh, or something in this area, which is the predecessor to, uh, to P. Ramses or Ramses in the area. And if, we were ex- if, if the Exodus is uh, something very, very late uh, as a development, we would expect to read Zoan or Tanis, which is the successor. Which is what Psalms do. Psalm 78, exactly. I was just going to say the other thing that uh, maybe helps answer your question a minute ago as I kind of finish that is the the narrative going from Joseph through departing Egypt in the Exodus has them, you know, Joseph and his, I mean, Joseph's brothers going back and forth a couple times. They're in the land of Goshen and they're not taking weeks to get back to him, right? It's, it, it seems like a short journey. I mean, I know that's not the most precise thing in the world. But they're not going all the way through the rest of Egypt. And the Semites in the archaeological record are all over the delta, not down in Thebes. The Hyksos, maybe perhaps starting some of that, of course, are Semites ruling in the delta in the previous era. So this is all perfectly in keeping with what we should expect for the seasonal migration that then becomes a more permanent one. That is the backdrop of the story fits this time period, too. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And in terms of like a clarifier, I would say when we say Egypt today, we have a map in our head of boundaries with the Nile running through it. When Egypt is said in ancient Egypt, it's it's the Nile. Like it's it's everything around the Nile and maybe a little bit in its, you know, in its its broader floodplain. For the Bible, and like, you know, an oasis or two. <laughs> yeah, I for the Bible, it's mostly Ninety uh, percent of the time, a reference to northern Egypt, to, to to lower Egypt, because that's the place that they had access to. And I, I'll give a couple more teasers. I would just simply say, without giving too much away, when we talk with uh, 
David Falk, hopefully, uh, about the Ark of the Covenant, and maybe eventually, if we if we refer to um, Ron on Eichler, um, they both have written books recently on the Ark of the Covenant, and both have made the same uh, general uh, case that they fit in very closely with New Kingdom parallels, and the best parallels for that are 19th, not 18th Dynasty, and we could point to others as well with the Tabernacle um, fitting in closely uh, as Josh Berman. Though I will say, it's not the Ramesside era doesn't have a total monopoly on all of that. I don't want to overstate it earlier. You do get just general New Kingdom, which would be the early date as well. But the better comps, I guess you could word it that way for now, do fit the 19th, the Ramesside era. And again, we'll we'll definitely be talking more about that in a future episode. Um, but I think the other thing that we need here, uh, and again, I'll bring up Kenneth Kitchen, who's you know a Mount Rushmore Egyptologist, who's the reason Ramesside studies exist, basically and has written at length on practically everything you can imagine within the ancient Near East. And he, when he talks about chronology in the Exodus and uh, in his Honor of the Reliability book, which is now 20 years old, right? I wish there was a way to get an updated version, but it's not going to happen. But he, uh, he notes the importance for external controls, precisely because of what we were talking about earlier, where the numbers can be... Uh, manipulated sounds a little too sinister, because I don't think anyone's doing it with those kind of intentions, but they can be they can be squeezed into any view fairly easily, that we need external controls. And he would then go on to suggest that the best external control is the reference to Ramses, Pi Ramses, in Exodus 111, because this is not something that's going to be, you know, argued over or have a bunch of interpretive dilemmas attached to it, like some of the rest of the chronology. And that allows the discussion to be more productive because it's an external control. Yeah, I, I think one of the... Anytime you have this discussion, you always have to kind of like choose, like your book, which is a great book. You know, we, in fact, we have uh, five episodes on this. If people want to go back and listen to it, the five views of the Exodus, we interviewed uh, all five of the authors. If you want to get different perspectives on this, but the question is is really part of a package. It's not just Exodus, and then you can have conquest and settlement. They all go together because it's a historical uh, sweep of of events that happen. And the focus is often on who's the Pharaoh of the Exodus, who, you know, how that fits. And I, and I think to, to riff on that point, in bringing up the settlement pattern of where uh, the Israelites thought Egypt was, or, or, you know, the setting of the Exodus uh, was, and that really seems to be Goshen, and then the early date view to make sense of what we know about mid-15th century Egypt would have to be in, in Upper Egypt, in, in and around Thebes in the area of Luxor, which doesn't fit. You could also say the same thing about the settlement pattern and the political situation that existed in the 15th and 14th centuries in Canaan itself, which is to say Canaan was absolutely dominated by New Kingdom Egypt from the conquest of Tutmos III all the way through until the end of the Ramesside period. And so not only do you have a problem internally of you know, even the Exodus story and how that works, but once Israel finally emerges and comes into, let's say, the land of Canaan, they're coming into uh, a landscape, which would be Joshua and Judges, that is absolutely controlled by a whole host of important pharaohs, whether we're talking about Amenemtep II, Amenemtep III, 
um, even even Akhenaten, which we have the Amarna correspondence. Hormheb for Hormheb, sure. Like all these guys are are campaign Ramsey's campaigns um, heavily in this area, and there's no reference to this in Joshua or Judges, um, and it seems to to fit, in my opinion, much better towards the end of New Kingdom's control when Egyptian power is weakening in, in in Canaan, as opposed to at its pinnacle. Essentially, the early date view, for it to work, it has to argue that Tutmose III, who conquers Canaan, has only conquered Canaan for like less than a generation, and almost the rest of, of the the Exodus events, the, the wilderness wanderings, the entire book of Joshua and Judges, they happen when Egypt is an absolute domination of the land of Canaan, which doesn't make, in my opinion, nearly as much sense as simply to say that once Israel arrives, Egypt is all, at least on the way out, if not completely on the way out. So that's uh, that's one thing. Yeah, and I think one of the forgotten points in 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 that conversation that I think is certainly applicable here is people are okay. So the new kingdom, you know, runs until the end of all these Ramses, you know, eleventh Ramses, the twelfth. You get all these Ramses, eleventh being the the last decent one. But Ramses the third is the last like militarily powerful pharaoh, and he doesn't really do anything much in the Levant. I mean, I know he he throws some Asiatics on the wall and all, but. He, his claim to fame in terms of military is fighting the sea people. So even after Ramses the Great, you're already seeing the Egyptians not have a strong presence in their own records with much precision for campaigns in the Levant. I mean, you've got Merneptah's one-off campaign in, the, the, of course, the famous victory steal, but most of that's about the Libyans, right? It's like 28 lines of it are about the Libyans, and the last three are about Syria-Palestine. So... And then after Merneptah, here's the forgotten point, there's a huge crisis of succession before Ramses III sort of stabilizes things again. But they never really recover in terms of an empire, not to the scope at least of its strength as the 18th dynasty had. And so you don't even need to get to the end of the New Kingdom. You can do the end of the 19th dynasty and see the empire starting to lose control. And the empire never struck back. And that gives people like the Israelites that... No, it never struck back. No. Got to work that Star Wars in whenever we can. Shameless you are. No. <laughs> uh, so the the point being, it, it's a long process of decline, and that gives a, that kind of a, a group like the Israelites has a bit of a window there. I just have a really hard time seeing what their window for carving out their own turf is in the 18th dynasty, even in Amarna, most Egyptologists will tell you now that this old idea that Akhenaten's just letting the whole thing go is is probably not true. That Horemheb at least is representing Egypt's interest in the area, and there's still the correspondences with the Hittites. It's like politically and militarily, it's a little harder to see the window for the Israelites if you want to talk about it in that bigger history kind of picture. Whereas the end of the 19th dynasty and even the 20th dynasty... And certainly after that, it's the archaeology says, okay, here is a whole different sort of settlement pattern, less Egyptian data. Of course, they still have some strongholds, but the the extent of control has waned, if, if that's maybe the best way I can think to put it. And that gives the Israelites that window, I think. Yeah, and I think the best proof of a 
comparison to that is it's precisely the window for the Philistines also. Um, they emerge as a uh, yeah people that have been around in this, this the you know the history of, of the of the wider ancient Near East and the Mediterranean world, but they reform and become something distinct and new precisely in this period that we're suggesting the Israelites do. Now they do so in a way that is different than the, the Israelites in that they lay claim to an area of, of places I like to call the where's where's um, along the coast with these five five Philistine cities, uh, Gath, Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza. Uh, and the Israelites are going to settle in a different area. But the point is, is that the vacuum left by, um, you know, after Menepta, after the end of the 19th dynasty, um, is pretty big. And um, it's going to last, really, for the rest of the Iron Age. And that power vacuum is going to be filled first by um, groups like the Philistines and the emergence of the Israelites, and there's probably Canaanites mixed in with the Israelites too, Um, and then these territorial states that we're going to have in the Iron II, um, with Judah, Israel, Ammon, Moab, Edom, and so on. And that power vacuum is going to be filled completely with the arrival of new empires with the Assyrians. And so I think just as a point of of comparison, that fits, uh, fits very nicely. Now, if we take the next... And the Assyrians, if I can jump in for a second, sorry, the Assyrians, they were also part of the late Bronze Age big club of brothers in the Egyptian text. So that's their first proper empire. They also wane, and it's like when when the cat's away, the mice will play. In terms of military history, that's where Israel, Aram... Maybe the Sea People. I mean, they're they're pretty powerful militarily, but at least historically, at the, that point in time, they're new. They're the mice, and the mice will play. But then the Neo Assyrians. Now we do have a Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, right later in Iron Two, of course. So that window, you know, fits for not just the Israelites. There's other groups that take advantage of it too. And so, if you're looking for even in the the regional history, you've got this window in the whole region where a, a group like the Israelites can form a nation. And then that gets you to David, and like, how does he make a kingdom? Or, well, it's perfect timing. Yeah, I think when people have this question in their mind, like, they're thinking specifically, like, biblical geography, biblical landscape, Dan de Beersheba, and that's Philistines and Israelites. But as you just alluded to, it's the collapse of the Hittite Empire, it's the collapse of the Assyrian Empire, it kind of survives, but okay, fine. It's the collapse of the Egyptian Empire. They do better than the rest, but but, yeah. but what does that lead to? It leads to peoples that we hadn't heard of before that are exactly mentioned in the Bible in the early part of the Iron Age. It's the Philistines, it's the Israelites we mentioned, but it's also the Arameans, it's the the Hittites, it's these these states that characterize the northern and southern Levant throughout the rest of the story that weren't there before, or the peoples were, but they weren't organized into these types of peoples because they were under the the control of the Hittite Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Mitannian Empire, or the Egyptian Empire. And so once again, what's the catalyst for this? It's the end of the it's the end of that world. It's the end of the uh, mercantile international theater uh, that characterized the late Bronze Age. And one of the impacts of that is the emergence of these states. Uh, which is pretty cool if you're thinking about it from a uh, even a theological perspective. You know, the providential side of that I think is 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 very very uh, very interesting. 
I was, I was going to say, I, I think the point you make is, is a great one because it's something that people are, are not necessarily always thinking about. It's the wider sweep that this fits in so nicely with. Yeah, and I tell my students, you know, we, we talk about the late Bronze Age collapse because we're, we are empire-focused. And as historians, that's that's where most of the texts come from. I mean, that, that's what makes the Bible truly unique, is that it's this gigantic text from one of the smaller got groups. But So we're empire-focused, we call it a collapse, but to people like Aram, or to Arameans, excuse me, Israelites, Phoenicians on a certain level, they've always been kind of valued for the trading, th- this isn't a collapse so much as an opportunity. And like, David has perfect timing. So yeah, you can call it providential pretty easily. But the, if we bring it back to the date of the Exodus, what's the window where Israel Israel can can do all this when the empires are still pretty strong, even with some chaos during the Amarna period? It's right back to recovery under Ramses the Great. The Hittites don't fall apart yet, you know. Like so, just a bigger picture I think fits the late date too. And let's let's talk too about the archaeology. And I know that's more in your wheelhouse. And the settlement patterns. You want to address that for a few? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think that I, I think that's very important. In some sense, it's it's the I don't want to say it's the most distinctive, but it is just as distinctive as saying Exodus one eleven. I already alluded to the fact that the Philistines are mentioned right there in Judges one. They're mentioned right there in Judges thirteen. And to me, that was one of the big things. Uh, if we go back to our original question, which is which is more historical? Um, uh, this text versus this text. To me, it was like a, a text like Joshua 13, which says this is the land that yet remains that Joshua hadn't conquered yet, the land of the Philistines. And so I would say to someone who is on the fence about 1 Kings 6 1, well, what do you do with <laughs> Joshua 13, which says the Philistines have not been there, have not been conquered by the Israelites, and we know that they were there at the earliest, at the late 13th century, beginning of the 12th century. But even if we look at the campaigns as are listed in the book of, of Joshua, um, and I've done quite a bit of, of, of study on this, Joshua is, is very much a, a home, uh, home base for me for, for much of, of, of research. Um, you mean there's geography in Joshua? <laughs> there, there's, there's a bit of geography in Joshua, and I, I would, I would have actually have a, <laughs> a, a view of, of the book of Joshua that um, presents... I think a pretty good—I don't want to say that we can say everything in it is historical. I'm not saying that it's not. I'm just saying that I'm not going to try to prove every single uh, aspect of that story, because uh, to, to me, I, I think that's a, a hard thing to do and not necessarily something I'm all that interested in. But if we just take the first 12 chapters of the book, uh, which is the, the, the battles, you know, especially uh, chapters 5 through 11, um, it presents— the Israelites going up against some of the more important Canaanite city-states in the in the region. And all of those end up appearing in Joshua chapter 12, which is, if you haven't read, it's probably not part of your memory verses, um, it's uh, the king of X killed by Joshua. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, and it's 30 of these. And it's essentially a map. It's a map of the My land. Kids just did that in their Sunday school. No. <laughs> it's 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 a map of the land of Canaan, <laughs> and in another paper we have coming out soon, what I what I demonstrated is that if you look at Joshua twelve, what you have is most of the important Canaanite city states in the land of Canaan, all of them 
with the exception of the ones that get mentioned the most, Jericho, I, and Arad, every single one of the other ones have clear late Bronze Age remains. Jericho's a bit of a question. I is a bit of a question. Arad is a bit of a question. I think there's actually Jericho does have LB. It's just late Bronze Age. It's it's just a question as to how 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 it works. But the rest of those thirty, all are important late Bronze Age city states. And so what that tells us is the author of the book of Joshua knows what the Canaanite map looks like. It knows what the late Bronze Age Canaanite city-state world looks like. And the maps that he gives after that, Joshua 13 through 21, of the different tribal areas, is is actually different. Uh, It's not Canaanite major city-states. Uh, some of them are included, some are not. And what I did my dissertation on in Joshua chapter 15, um, which is a composition of a boundary list and a town list, what I found is for that section, we have something like 130 sites that are mentioned in Joshua 15 and another small section for Benjamin in Joshua 18. Only 40% of those sites have late Bronze Age. Where they all have Iron Age, because that's the time period that it reflects, but whereas Joshua 12, almost every town that's mentioned there is a Canaanite site occupied in the Late Bronze Age. And so what's that saying is, is that the historical section, or the narrative section, let's say, seems to reflect that Canaanite, uh, that Canaanite world, whereas some of the other stuff is clearly showing signs of development, where it's probably an administrative document. Um, I would even take this a step further, though. If we go to some of the specifics, like, let's say, a Hatsor. Hatsor, the biggest and baddest Canaanite town out there, um, occupied continuously from the Middle Bronze to the end of the Late Bronze Age, middle uh, to end of the 13th century, it has a single destruction layer. Um, it's been said in the past that it had multiple destruction layers. It has one. It has one at the, at the end of its history, the end of its Canaanite history, where this 200-acre size site is destroyed. Um, and I would go with Amnon Bentor and Higal Yadin before him and say that the likeliest candidate for this is the Israelites, which are mentioned in the book of Joshua. Um, and so the fact that it has this destruction layer, and only one, according to the archaeologists, not multiple ones, that fits very closely with uh, a 13th century view... Um, and not only that, it has signs within that destruction of the mutilation of idols, uh, where the heads are knocked off intentionally, uh, at least according to Amnon Mentor, is another uh, aspect of this that I think fits well. So the, the, the conquest side of it, I would say in Joshua 12, if we're just looking at a text, points to a, a nice view that the map that the author of Joshua has in his head of Canaan matches what we see at the end of the Late Bronze Age in the 13th century. A number of these sites were uh, destroyed around that time period. I'm not saying Joshua and the Israelites were the ones who did that, uh, although maybe they were, um, who who destroyed these sites. And in the case of Hatsor, it fits very closely. But then let's think about settlement itself. Um, and this is something that's also in the paper I mentioned earlier about the, the numbers of 1 Kings 6.1, that if you look at a text like Joshua uh, 17, 
which is a text that deals with the clans of the Manassehites. Uh, and it's, it's also repeated in other places in Chronicles and Numbers and so on. Uh, we actually have a very interesting uh, text to compare this to, the Samaria Ostraca. The Samaria Ostraca come from Samaria. Uh, Ostraca are potsherds that were written on. In this case, they were ink. They um, were written at the very beginning of the 8th century BC, so the early 700s, during the reign of Jehoash, king of Israel, or Jeroboam II. Uh, and in fact, they even have their regnal years on them. Now, in you might say, well, what does this have to do with, with the settlement? Well, I'll tell you. The towns, a number of these inscriptions have town names on them, and a number of them, quite interestingly, have the name of the same clans of Manasseh that appear in Joshua 17. Uh, almost all of them are represented, Noah uh, and, and others, the Abizarites, uh, like, like Gideon's hometown. Uh, or Gideon's uh, home clan of the Manassites. And what you see is that these place names can be easily identified with archaeological sites that match the same Arabic name with the same name that we see on the Ostraca. So you can find the sites that it's referring to in the Samaria Ostraca, where the inhabitants were sending oil or wine back to Samaria in the early 8th century. But if you look at the archaeology of these sites, None of them are founded in the Late Bronze Age. All of them are founded uh, either in the time period, 9th or 8th century, or, and in most cases, all of them were founded in the Iron One, which would be the 12th and the 11th centuries BC. In other words, the biblical text in Joshua 17 talks about clans of the Manassehites settling in the hills of um, Ephraim and Manasseh, northern uh, central, central hills of Canaan, and what we see archaeologically is a wave of settlement of a bunch of new sites precisely in the late 13th and 12th centuries BC. And that's what archaeology shows um, from Adam Zertal's uh, surveys, what from Israel Finkelstein's surveys. Um, so that seems to match, in general, that you have a wave of new settlements that match the Israelites. But more specifically, you have specific clans and sites that we can identify with archaeology and historical geography that match an Iron One beginning. In other words, settlement sites primarily are um, beginning in the, at the very earliest, late 13th century, 12th century. That's what the Israelites are doing. They're settling in small sites that develop into Israelite towns that are eventually incorporated into the northern kingdom of Israel. What the Philistines are doing is they're mostly living in the old Canaanite cities, the city-states like Gaza, Gath, Ekron, and so on, and they're becoming their own political entities. And so, once again, you have the sequence which matches all three of these levels, a kind of interest, an entrance uh, campaign, which you can, uh, you might say, fits, well, let's, let's just use the example of Hatzor, but in terms of the settlement, we can say in general it fits with all of these different sites we have in Ephraim and Manasseh, but then the specific ones where we can point to uh, a settlement like Judge Joshua 17 with these clans, it also fits very closely. Yeah, and so if the exodus happens in the 15th century, where's the where's the settlements? Where's where, there's no pattern of new groups in that region that would be part of Joshua Judge's narratives. Um, but if the exodus is in the 13th century, 
those early Iron One settlements would be a pretty good fit. Now, this is not to say, and I hope the listeners don't take it this way, but this is not to say that the late view, as we're calling it, or the, the 13th century exodus, is like immune to criticism or doesn't have a few things to sort of still unpack. For instance, the window of time between leaving Egypt and arriving in the land in time for Merneptah to run into them in, you know, 1207, 1208, that's pretty tight. Um, so it's not, I don't want it to sound like we think this is like, oh, we've got it all figured out. It's just on balance, the bulk of the evidence, when we understand the biblical text in the immediate vicinity of the Exodus, including the book itself, and the archaeological evidence, and the big picture ancient Near East history, which is kind of the stuff we did with the cats and the mice a bit ago, it all suggests that the on balance best view remains the 13th century. If new data comes out that suggests otherwise or or something, you know, along those lines, then I am all ears. I would, you know, that would be awesome if there were some great new uh, pieces of evidence to bring to the discussion that make you really stop and pause and reevaluate. But right now, I don't think the case for the early date is as compelling when you look at all of it. And in, even with the the First Kings 6 part of the early date, you still have ways to understand that that don't require a 15th century exodus. So that's just for me on balance how it all sort of plays out in the overall conclusion I would give for our listeners after we've already sort of interviewed the five uh, guys in the book that I edited, you know, here's our view and why. And I think, I hope that was useful. And again, it combines the biblical data, the archaeological data, and the, the bigger picture historical data. I think pretty well. It's not perfect. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely right, and I think that's a good summary of, of the way we approached it. If I may, I would add just a couple other things that I thought of while you were talking. I suppose you can. As the I, you think here. so. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I would say also, if we if we think about um, an episode we did all together where we talked about the so-called curse tablet, uh, the lead tablet from Mount Ebal, um, we talked about some of these issues then. That structure... At the whether it's Joshua's altar or not, or, or a structure that relates to early Israelite worship, which I think is garnering more support among archaeologists that it is an early Israelite uh, uh, cultic site. Um, at the earliest, that building can only date to the very end of the 13th century. Um, so once again, it fits in with with this view. Shiloh, the excavations there, um, the the. The structures that represent from from the Israelites, it's from the Iron One. It's not from the Late Bronze Age. And more than that, in the highlands of Ephraim and Manasseh, you only have a few Late Bronze Age sites in general. These, uh, where which is where we have the settlement. You you have like a place like Shechem and Bethel and, and Tirzah and a few others um, of Late Bronze Age sites. The rest are new. So you go from um, people living there in the Middle Bronze Age, then a, a settlement gap. For, for, for new sites until this the Israelites move in and that's when we have the emergence of a lot of these a lot of these sites and that fits in again not only with the general uh, view of what we look at the settlement pattern but the specific thing when we talk about a place like okay let's maybe say Mount Ebal but definitely in the case of Shiloh where at least again according to the current archaeological evidence seems to indicate that a, 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 an area that we could associate with Israel is not in 1406 BC but is more like 1200 at the earliest. 
Um, so uh, again, it doesn't quite doesn't quite fit, or does I, I would say it doesn't fit very good very good at all with with the early date uh, with the early date view. Yeah, and uh, just to remind everyone, when it comes to the the Mount Ebal curse tablet, we're still awaiting excitedly awaiting the official formal scientific publication, which I would anticipate being within the next several months. I mean, I don't know if I would say, oh, definitely by the end of the year, but I know the people involved are working on it and getting close to having that, you know, submitted the process is continuing. So we'll be able to have a lot more to say about that. And we'll probably do another panel episode on it, I would think. Um, so that, that stay tuned, but either way, this, the the tablet is new, not the site. So like the point Chris is making here is the site still dates not to, you know, the the, the late bronze or to the 1400s or something. Um, so, yeah, I think when we just look at the complete picture, the late date does still seem best. You know, this, this goes back, you know, all the way to Albright, right? You know, like sometimes our scholastic forebears did get it right. I know we all want new things to say and we all have to like publish things that advance the conversation, but but sometimes it's also just as valuable to go back and evaluate and and, and then if the arc the new archaeology is still giving us the same, you know, range of settlement at dates for the settlements, then we can okay, so they you know, even with less data, that theory still I think holds water best. Yeah, I, I think it's I think that's right in in the sense that when we approach like these these different theories that are out there, in any any biblical archaeology course, we'll approach like the five different schools of thought. There's a reason why we have these different schools of thought, like a conquest theory, either whether it's early date or late date, peasant revolt, peaceful immigration, and so on. And I actually say, besides the um, peasant revolt one, which is like a Cold War <laughs> idea of like peasants revolting, like the Canaanites were Marxists. Um, I I. I I don't think that one works. What was it Deaver? Was it Deaver who called it revolting peasant theory? It was like Deaver or Kitchen or somebody, one of these like really established sassier guys. So the revolting peasant theory. <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off, but... No, no, that's good. I, I, I think that there's actually aspects of each one of those that make a lot of sense. And, and one of the big ones that I think, and we, I know we need to wrap this up here, but I think one of the big ones that helps fit is the idea of local Canaanites always being part of the story of Israel or Semites in Egypt that and that's actually all over the text like when we have Exodus the mixed multitude that goes up the fact that we have Egyptians joining the uh, Israelites in their ranks when they leave uh, Egypt the fact that we have Rahab the Hivites at Gibeon uh, if we look at the genealogies even in a, in a text like Chronicles the first uh, nine chapters of First Chronicles, it's clearly showing that there are local people that were Israelites that weren't part of that original um, story, that it's always dealing with a mixture of peoples that are becoming affiliated with, um, with, with ancient Israel, with, with the Israelites and the Judahites and, and the, all the other uh, smaller clans. And that's right there in the biblical text, but we often think of it more in like a monolithic way. Like, unless you're descended right from Abraham and Sarah and can prove it, you're not in. Um, and, and that's not at all the way that the biblical text is, is, is presenting the story. Now, often it's, it's focused on one family, but once you look at more of like the peripheral details, especially with genealogies, 
and some of these stories that indicate, okay, why are the Kenites, why are they part of our team? Uh, or why are, you know, XYZ tribes over here, how come we can't kill them? Or how come they're involved with us? It's, it's because they were how Israel was formed in the first place. And so I'm not suggesting there wasn't an actual group of Israelites that identified themselves in Egypt. I think maybe probably there was, but how and what and when <laughs> they became uh, Israelites, um, I don't know. I mean, it, and we can't know because the text is telling us that it was a, a process, which actually, if you think about the, the human element of even our own families and our own DNA, and, uh, th- this mixing of, of, of both uh, human life being messy uh, and and descent being being messy, but you need to to tell the story. You gotta you gotta pick the the thread and follow it all the way through to tell the story in a certain way. And and I think both of us acknowledge the the significance of the way the story is told and following the story with the the right intent of what the author is trying to intend. And yet at the same time, from a historical and archaeological perspective not letting our own uh, desire to you know f- you know have this have this fit exactly um, and ignore this other evidence uh, over here like I mentioned with the the mixing of different uh, different peoples included how that can also inform us to understand what ancient Israel uh, would have actually looked like and it's a com- it's a, it's a composite of a, of a bunch of different peoples so I think that's another aspect in this as well yeah we want it to be neat and tidy and it really just isn't usually. Or as an Egyptologist, I think of, um, you know, the, the Egyptians loved dualism, and they loved contradictory things, and they don't mind having the deity be, you know, an, this animal in one depiction and that animal over there in another, and they don't mind that one bit, and we're like, ah, how is that the same, you know? And so I think that's just all part of the skill of, of historical empathy, by which I mean the ability to put ourselves in the shoes of the people living there. And I think when it comes to, you know, Israelite settlement patterns and, and who are the Israelites and the fact that there's Canaanites in there, that shouldn't surprise us at all. I mean, most of the Old Testament is about their inability to figure out how to follow Yahweh with these the, the pressures of idolatry and intermarrying and all these things going on. And that runs right in through the post-exilic period. And Ezra's like, hey, you all need to not be married to any of them. You know, <laughs> so like, this is, a, a, th- that thread, as you put it before, you know, even that thread runs all the way through. So I think these are all important things to keep in mind when we look at these huge and important topics. Yeah, I agree. And I think this was fun. I think it was a bit controversial, um, but we don't mind. And so we would love for you to react we'll uh, with with comments, uh, even disagreements, if you like. Uh, leave us a rating, if you would, on, uh, on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen. Uh, This was a fun uh, part of our series of Egypt and the Bible with Mark and Chris. And we look forward to our, our uh, our next episode, which should be coming out in the next few weeks or so. So thanks for tuning in. And until next time, keep digging. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging.